0: This is episode 11 of the Triathlete Hour. I'm your host Kelly O'Mara, editor in chief of Triathlete Magazine. This week, we're going to start by talking to someone a little different. The number one ranked Zwift rider in the world, Holden Camo, talks to us about everything that goes into making e-racing fair and what he thinks about Ironman's announcement that they'll be awarding slots to the 70.3 World Championships via a series of virtual races. How will that work, and what are the issues? Then we chat with Olympian Ben Canute, The second place finisher at 70.3 Worlds tells us which is harder, 70.3s or ITU? And what mistakes did he make when he moved up in distance? Plus, his puppy interrupts us a few times. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. All this after a short break. If you've been paying attention to what the pros are doing, then you've probably heard about WHOOP. WHOOP is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on how recovered you are and how much stress you put your body through during the day. Each day when you get up, WHOOP gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability. And the way it works is you wear the WHOOP band around your wrist all day. And don't worry, it's 100% waterproof. It even tracks your heart rate while you're swimming. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in the app, and you can use features like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery for that day. You can even set to tell you when you've hit your target strain effort for the day, like, okay, that was good, now you can stop. There's also a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the next day, and it tracks all your different sleep cycles. Whoop is offering 15% off right now with the code TRIATHLETE at checkout. Go to whoop, W H O O P dot com and enter TRIATHLETE at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop today. All right, I'm here talking to Holden Kamo, who is the number one ranked Zwift rider in the world. uh Well, thanks for joining us. And can you tell me what that means?
1: <laughs> the number one ranked Zw- Zwift rider, r- racer, I guess, in the world. And I should uh, i am am super specific. So okay. I'm, I'm currently ranked number seven. Mm-hmm. I think I had been number one for a couple months, but those rankings are always in flux. I think that's sort of the point. Um, everyone who races on Zwift, um, uh, at least the that the the most. Passionate and dedicated racers um, Are sort of self enter and self select themselves into this ranking system Uh, uh, And just based on your finish the strength of field in a given race um, You are allocated a certain number of points um, That uh, ultimately lower is better on the rankings list. So you are constantly dropping your your Mm -hmm. overall score um, And that's just all tallied up in a database uh and um I think there's about last time I checked just over a hundred thousand people who are entered in this list okay. worldwide. Um and uh yeah, I think over over the winter I was ranked first, I think for about four months consecutively. Um and then uh over this last couple month months actually this past month i I've, I've Let that slip down a little bit. I've been doing some different types of races that haven't allowed me to stay on top of the rankings.
0: Oh, Uh, man. Oh, no. I think – so to make sure I get this right, because I think some of our audience will be a little confused. This isn't just everyone who goes on Zwift. You have to be part of like a very specific kind of like sign up for a specific system to be ranked, right?
1: Right. Yeah. There's. Yeah. People. I think experience Swift in a lot of different ways. I think that's why uh, it's so much fun. Um, it's sort of just this open world, and you can do whatever you want uh, on Swift. You can just go and log in and ride, and um, you know, mess around. You can go meet up up with some friends if you want you can join an organized group ride uh and then uh ultimately what what i've gotten really into you can join the racing community um and there's a few different ways to engage in in racing um the the first way is to just sign up for any race that's that's hosted on zwift and you do that via their mobile app They've got a little phone app that you can go in and just find a race that's sort of happening all the time. Um, You know, every 15 minutes, there's some type of race going off. Um, And you can just enter those to go a step deeper, I think. (laughs) Um, There's a third party website that is very closely connected with Zwift, um, but it is not Zwift. Uh, That that website's called zwiftpower.com. Um, and that is definitely the de facto, uh, results, um, database. And, and, and website okay. uh, it, it, it's a it's where you can go to see all of your own historic race results from Zwift uh, but also all of your competitors and anyone you've ever raced before so every race that's ever contested on Zwift is basically stored in Zwift power and when you when you start a Zwift power account or you opt into their service that is definitely taking that next step of, of, of you know calling yourself a, a more um, committed a or se- more serious, right? Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So, how did you get involved? Because I know you swam collegiately in college. You raced as a pro triathlete for a long time, like on the ITU circuit. And now you pretty much you pretty much ride exclusively indoors, right? I read somewhere you hadn't written outside in a long time.
1: It, how- that's exactly <laughs> true. Yeah.
0: How did you get involved in all this? Like, how did that even you know happen?
1: Yeah. I, so I finished triathlon about eight eight or nine years ago um and yeah i started on i raced i think i was all I, was, I think it was best at olympic distance tried some itu stuff i did a few continental cups and got pretty decent at at those races uh but then as the as i got older i kept on going further and further. And then I had my, my first kid, my son was born. I started a company, an analytics company and things just uh, weren't, weren't, weren't progressing for me <laughs> as an athlete anymore. My, my interests were somewhere were elsewhere, I guess. Um, so I, I stopped racing and training um, sort of cold Turkey and yeah. went for about two years of doing nothing athletically. And that was right around the time where I was starting the company. So I was definitely all in and all my attention was just on that. But after about two years of doing nothing, I started to get a little anxious and I had gained some weight. So I, I started running again. Um, and over the winter, I, I you know, it's, I, I didn't want to keep running, um, when it was cold outside. So my, my business partner actually turned me on to Zwift as a way to stay fit over the winters. And that's, that's really how I started. I, I, um, uh, just jumped on for some exercise. I didn't really start racing on Zwift until the first two winters, um, were sort of under my belt. And then I discovered the racing stuff and really what has kept me interested in it, it. It's just fits really well with my life. I am a, Uh, you know i run a i run a company i've got now two kids my wife i'm kind of busy and swift just gives me the flexibility to um to get my workouts and my racing in um and i can do that early in the morning before the kids wake up it's kind of perfect um so yeah that that's that's really what got me hooked um i think i won the national championship last year uh and just with national
0: championship to be clear right like
1: that's right okay yeah yeah and so yeah they had the Zwift Zwift held the national championship It was open to anyone who wanted to join it you could just join it <laughs> um, I had joined a, a team uh, a couple weeks prior to that and we're mostly Americans on the team that was a huge advantage because we fielded oh, really? you know one of the largest teams in the race and yeah it was it was um, it was it was a great experience and um, it was a big race. I'm a sprinter, uh, and it came down to a big pack sprint on the end, and I and I won, and it was just it was thrilling, and, and, and no joke. It, I've been in, I feel like this is my third my third athletic career. I was a swimmer, like you said, and then I was a triathlete, and now I'm 42 now. I was 41 when I when I won the national championship, and I, I really feel as though that was the best athletic moment of my life it was it was unbelievable and i was in my in my basement right
0: like by day. yourself right interesting okay yeah this is i think you're at like another i think you've like skipped a few levels past like a lot of our my understanding of you know virtual racing and how it works because uh because obviously that's like a that's you know an elite level uh, a pro level almost um which is why you and i started talking because e-racing is getting so big right now you know kind of accelerated with the quarantine And Iron Man announced last week uh, that they would be I mean, they have a virtual race series that uses Ruby, not Zwift, you know, similar platform for those who don't know, but some key differences. And they announced last week that they would be awarding slots to 70.3 worlds in real life via of the virtual race series, which obviously raised a lot of questions for people who have never, you know, who who have never won a national championship, don't even know that's the thing. And so you and I start talking because what are some of the issues then that come into play when you start talking about virtual racing as a serious thing, like as more than just you know for fun?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, that I it's I have mixed feelings about <laughs> um, that I, decision. I can I, tell, yeah. I, yeah, on the, on the one hand I think it's I think it's super exciting. Um, you know, I I'm certainly biased. I'm I'm all in on on esports and uh, virtual racing and I think it's just only going to continue to get bigger and more important and um uh and you know, the sense of of legitimacy that that is continuing to grow around the sport is just um it's just doing that. It's continuing to grow. Um it's being sanctioned by the UCI this coming year or supposed to be COVID's definitely slowed, right. slowed some things down, but, um, the UCI announced last year that they're going to award a, a rainbow Jersey and a world champion in, in esports, And that was going to be contested on the Zwift platform. So I think, um, it from a, from a, from a pro racing legitimate legitimacy standpoint, that's all, coming. It's there. I want to see that happen. Um, and the athletes who are racing in esports are, um, a lot of that fitness and that skill is, is, it is, is transferable. If you're fast in esports, you're going to be fast racing in, in real life and, and vice versa. Um, but, uh, uh so it's exciting the right. Ironman announcement at the same time, it's really early days still. <laughs> and, um, they're, uh, they're, it, it's, I think it's really tricky to to um, to, to, pump, to to do something like this to qualify an athlete in a virtual environment and expect that that's going to, or at least have the expectation that that's going to um, ultimately do what you want it to do in real life, which is you know get the best athletes to the championship, world championships in this instance. Right. Um, I've found that um, esports is just is its own discipline um so the, the people who are best at virtual racing are not necessarily the people who are best at in real life racing um it's it's a it can be a very different um physiology um athlete type in general uh so there's that component that um i think comes into play as part of the part of the challenge here and the, the the other piece to this is that um uh, I think athletes are. I think athletes break the rules.
0: <laughs> You're trying to come up with a nice way to say how how to <laughs> yeah. regulate it, right? Like how to make sure people don't cheat.
1: <laughs> exactly. I think people cheat. People cheat in real life, right? You know, and and but and people cheat in esports as well. I think the challenge with esports is that people are cheating and they don't realize it. I don't think. I think most of the problems right now with esports are that that um, it's kind of complicated and you have to really go above and beyond to make sure that you are not cheating. Um, Otherwise you almost default to this state where you're sort of cheating inadvertently. You mean to like
0: calibrate all your equipment and make sure it's all correct and that you have all the most updated software and like all those tech things, right? That's what you're talking about.
1: Exactly. It's really complicated. And if you don't, if you don't go through all those processes um, you can, inadvertently get a big advantage uh and it's really hard to normalize all of the competitors so you know my my concern i think everyone's concerned with with a program like this would be that there might be a lot of those instances where people might be going down this process and being awarded a world championship slot uh and you know and 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 doing that based on a performance of of, uh, of equipment that might be improperly calibrated just as an example right uh, and and they might not even realize it you know and and then that becomes a pretty tricky um you know um conversation to to manage and, and are you gonna take that slot away from someone if it comes out that they had miscalibrated their their equipment and how do you determine if someone's telling the truth, if they did it on purpose or if they did it inadvertently? And it's, it's, it's challenging for sure.
0: So why don't you then just walk us through some of the things you have to do? Like when you won the national championship on Zwift, there is a whole set of rules that comes with that, right? There's, I read, or I didn't read because it's long, but there's a whole Zwift e-cycling rule book. Why don't you walk us through some of the things that they do that, you know, you were required to do to make sure it was fair and, all that.
1: Yeah. Um well to tell you how quickly things are moving and how <laughs> new this all all is when I won the national championship there was some verification processes in place uh and they over the course of the last year have been completely updated and had, there's been significant advancements in 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 um how riders are now verified and um and you know that's in one year's time mm-hmm. it's just been massive change and it continues to move so quickly um so i think from that perspective i'll tell you sort of the current status because i think that's the best um when we when i won one nationals it was sort of in this in the spirit there just wasn't as much to to work to do um Mm -hmm. that goes into the verification the first thing that is super important um particularly on zwift is that that the riders weight their body weight is accurately reflected in game um and i'm not sure how ruby handles that i would assume there's like a, a necessity to enter your body weight mm-hmm. um but that is really critical that that gets um updated on a regular basis to reflect your body weight on in, at any given moment every day <laughs> so i i race almost every day and it fluctuates my weight fluctuates you know five pounds a week you know it's, <laughs> down um and depending on the time of day etc but even a, you know a, a three to five pound weight fluctuation has a really significant performance uh, change in hmm. in the game it, re- it really matters so we developed a protocol um or there's this protocol in place when i say we developed it my, my team was actually part of developing the protocol um where we perform a, a live video so we record ourselves Record, make a live video weighing ourselves, basically. And we weigh a, a fixed or a known weight, um, like a dumbbell, uh, put that on the scale, take it, take the dumbbell off, weigh ourselves, uh, and then weigh ourselves one more time holding the dumbbell. Um, and it takes about a minute to do. It's super quick. Uh, that is, there's a few different places that you can share that live video. Um, if you're just part of the community and you want to, um, you know, let your competitors know that you're you're legit and that you weigh what you say you weigh. There's a uh, a closed Facebook group that's got a couple thousand people in it, um, and you can post those live videos there. Um, it's very very closely admin um regulated so it's just it's very um it's a safe place to put video but as far as the verification process goes that also gets sent into a uh an oversight panel hmm. that regulates swift swift racing and it's a group called zada z-a-d-a oh, yeah. uh, which, is, which is a um you know the Wada like entity that that um that uh is independent as Zwift and you send them data and, and videos of yourself, of weighing yourself and, and they help to uh, sort of manually dig through individual performances to validate people mm-hmm. in different ways. So um, the weigh in video is super important and also really manual, you know, that's not easy to do. Like you said, for thousands of Ironman right, right. athletes.
0: Cause so this um, is like basically something you just do yourself or for like the very elite races right this is not mass participation everyone on Zwift or all the people doing the Ironman race for example
1: yeah this is this is a requirement for uh uh, elite level or pro-am racing on Zwift uh and there's you know maybe 150 athletes who fall into that category it's not something it's not huge right yeah it's not the, the whole community doesn't need to do it. It is a requirement for pro level racing. Um but a lot of community members still choose to do it as well because it's a best practice. Mm-hmm. I think I think um, you know, it these are uh there's there's more to this that I can go into into <laughs> into detail, but um, you know, these are the steps that need to be taken at the pro level of esports in order to 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 make sure that the people who are racing are doing it fairly and you know, that is important for pro level racing, but it really is important anytime there's a need to validate performance on esports. So, and so in, I think this is, this, uh, this world championship qualifier is a perfect instance of that. Um, you know, if, if we need, if the, if, if you need to validate rider performances, they're, they're gonna need to go into this kind of detail, Right. Uh, or everyone's going to need to get comfortable with the fact that there could be some, um, some gray area around these performances. And I think that's okay too, but that's the point. It's, you know, if, 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 if you, if there's a need to go into this validation, um, process, you sort of have to go pretty deep, um, in order to, to, to make sure everyone's participating fairly. So, um,
0: Got it. So there's so, you know, there are these, I mean, I've seen them before I've seen people do the video weigh-ins before they're like the pro tri series, Swift races every week. They've all started videoing themselves before. Um, There's also like calibrate, you know, there's very specific rules about calibrating and make, you know, like having backup sources of data. I know there are very specific rules about, you know, all that kind of stuff at the very, very top level of Swift, you know, world championships, They'll even have everybody in the same room, right? Like riding their trainers in a gym or whatever to, to literally see everyone.
1: Yeah, I think that that's definitely where the future is going to be, particularly for the UCI World Championships and even future national uh, championship events. I think will all be held in the in the same room on the same equipment that has all been, um, you know, calibrated by 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 a single person or using the same calibration process. Um, uh, You know, until then, there really isn't a, until we, until you get up to that level, it's, you you have to rely on, on every individual sort of going through this process. Like you said, the dual recording piece is really important. Um, uh, You know, having two power meters, it's not a perfect uh, system. And even that is, is, can be gamed and cheated a bit, but, (laughs) But when you go through these steps and take take more and more steps to to prove that what you're doing is what you're doing, it sort of makes it increasingly difficult for people who want to cheat to cheat. Uh, it just adds layers of friction to the, to that whole right. process. So, having two two power meters, you re- record your race using two different power sources. You know, one one power source could be your smart trainer, and that is what you send into the game. The other is you know your crank based or base power meter and that gets sent to a Garmin or something. And then you can take those two power files and compare them after it's over and see if you know they're within a certain degree of, of, of separation of one another, um, just to see if there's any issues. I, I've been dual recording power meters for the last two years. I've gone through a couple different power meters, I've had like seven different smart trainers um, and you know with that long history of data now it's actually pretty interesting to see you can um it it with seven different trainers with multiple power meters and everything's all pretty much lining up. Really. Uh, you get a you get a great sort you get a great like File passport almost, you know, a data passport. You can see this long trail of history with data that all, that has remained relatively consistent over the Interesting. last couple of years.
0: Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Then you can't just be like, oh, I'm not sl-. you know when you're power when you're slow on one day and you just are like, oh, it's my power meter. It's acting up. You can't say that. You have all this data. It's yeah. you. Yeah. Um it sounds like all this stuff though is very complex and obviously doable for an elite level. But well, would be very hard at a mass level, and I guess that's kind of like our—I don't know if it's our last question—but sort of the the direction I'm going here is: is this all possible at a mass level participation right now? Like, given what we can do I right think, now?
1: Yeah, I think um, in my so I've, I've sort of spoken from mm-hmm. wearing this this hat of being a being like a a, a, a spokesperson for esports. Right. You know, and, and, I, I want to see and I want to make sure that the, that esports continues to grow in the right direction and that it's not um, compromised in any way. And uh, that it becomes this awesome, exciting new, um, new discipline to, to, to cycling and triathlon. Um, on the other hand, um, to answer this question, I look at this from just uh, uh, in response to everything that's happening in the world right now. And um, as, as, challenging and as difficult as it might be to award world championship slots based on in a virtual performance because of all those reasons that we just went through uh, what what else are we going to do right now and i think it's i think it's i think it's more important to make sure that there's a world championship God. and have athletes going there and i think that um you know if that that to me is the most important thing. So although it might not be perfect and it might be a bit of a compromise, um, as far as the path to the world championship goes, um, I, I think that, um, am I'm, I'm all in favor and I, you know, and, uh, and, and I I wish them the best. I I think, um, that makes me excited that there's this option at least, um, for continuing i remember like seeing the news when the olympics were canceled and i just couldn't couldn't imagine being in that position as an athlete where you're preparing for so long and then the rugs just ripped out from underneath you so you know that wearing that humanistic hat i think it's i think it's i think it's great i hope that you know surely will be some challenges um but uh there's going to be athletes racing in a world championship and that's the most yeah. important
0: thing i see what you're saying since we can't really have qualifying races right now and, and this at least gives people a pathway it's an option um and it could yeah. even be an option in the future for people who don't have races near them you know this is a, a way to to reach those people so yeah yeah it'll be interesting It'll especially be interesting if we ever get you know virtual swimming so <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah on uh on what's the device the um Uh, I forget the name of this, the dry land. Right, right. Everyone with
0: their bands in their living room, virtual swimming. It'll be great. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Holden, and for, you know, giving us kind of a a deep dive into the world of of Zwift pro racing.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And um, I think this is just a, this is a super interesting topic. And um, it's fun to think about triathlon again. Uh, (laughs) I've been so immersed in in cycling and esports, cycling in particular. And I've, uh, you know, I was once a very passionate triathlete. So (laughs) it's, it's great to reconnect and think about Ironman.
0: Great, well, thank you. We're triathletes. We like to know how we're performing and how we could be better. We want all the data. And that's where WHOOP comes in. WHOOP is a fitness wearable that tracks your heart rate, heart rate variability, sleep, activity levels, calories burned, and most importantly, recovery. Every day, WHOOP gives you a recovery score based on how your body is recovered from the day before. So you can know if today's the day to tackle that huge workout or maybe adjust and pull back a little, take an extra nap. WHOOP is offering 15% off right now with the code triathlete at checkout. Go to WHOOP, W-H-O-O-P dot and enter triathlete at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover better, and train better. Get faster right now with WHOOP. All right, we're here today with Ben Canute, the 2016 Olympian, second at 70.3 Worlds. Uh, thanks for talking to us from hot Arizona, Ben.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: So it's uh, pretty hot there, right? It's like 110 right now or something like that?
2: Yeah, you know, we just had a, a bit of a heat wave come through, so the past couple weeks have been um, pretty good, actually, Pretty uh, not too hot and some pretty decent training weather, but Right now, it's a lot of early mornings and avoiding the heat of the day.
0: I was going to say, what are your tips? Because you've been in Arizona forever. And I don't think of Arizona as like a great place to train, but you love it. So
2: yeah, it's fantastic, especially in the winter and the summer. The best tip is to get out and go somewhere that's a little bit cooler. But it's uh, the heat adaptations that you get are, are actually really good. And um, if you look at studies looking at like heat versus altitude, a lot of similar adaptations happen. So we just kind of adjust and, and work with it, do some indoor training in the middle of the day. Um, pool time is a little bit better to get in the, the water and then running happens pretty early in the morning.
0: Okay. All right. Um, and, and you've been quarantining with your wife and your dog, right? Is that right? And I think you have a full quarantine beard going too now.
2: Yes, exactly. Yep. Quarantining with my wife and our new puppy. And yeah, the beard's been kind of in some works before uh, before quarantine, but has really come into fruition here, I think.
0: And what's that, I mean, I've been trying to check in with everybody when we do this, like, what's that been like for you? How has the quarantine situation been for you in Arizona? Is it back to normal now? Is it stressful? What's, yeah, what's happening?
2: Um, so yeah, you know, at first it was just kind of like a, a sitting around and waiting, trying to maintain fitness and be ready to race whenever racing came back. But now it's, it's more of uh, working on some of my weaknesses to come back a stronger athlete and just kind of working around some of the, the different things that have been closed for you know the past month or so. But uh, luckily in Arizona here, we've actually been able to get out quite a bit. And um, we're still taking it uh, pretty seriously in quarantine and quarantining quite a bit. But the state, for the most part, is, is kind of like doing a soft open or hard open where... <laughs> Um, there's quite a few things that, that are back to normal and people are out and about. So I believe the pools are open and stuff here, but we're still just, you know, kind of taking it relaxed and easy since there's no immediate rush to get really, really fit for a race.
0: No, definitely not. Right. Uh, what were your plans this year? I mean, I know like you've done the Olympics, you have done 70.3. What was your focus going to be this year? Were you trying for Tokyo? What happened?
2: Yeah, two main goals were to qualify for Tokyo and and win a medal on the mixed relay and then try and win the 70.3 World Championship. So uh, I was going to start off my season at the Sarasota World Cup and go do an exhibition race for the Super League Racing and then the following weekend go and qualify for the Half Ironman World Champs in Oceanside. Um, But obviously that's all been pushed back. Um, Yeah, so... I had some other races in there like St. Anthony's and, of course, Escape from Alcatraz to try and um, have my fourth win in a row there. But really now it's just kind of uh, waiting and and seeing when races start popping back up.
0: Yeah. So I guess you have two situations there. you know that the Olympics are happening at a set time next year, but 70.3 Worlds, they haven't set a date yet for it. They like said it's postponed. But which one's more stressful, like knowing or not knowing?
2: (laughs) Uh, that's a good question. I think that, you know, knowing you get to formulate a plan and there's more clarity in that. Uh, so for us, like we we have a date now for the Olympics le- next year, and um, it's all about being prepared and pretty much having an extra year to be better than we are right now. Uh, and as for Worlds, you know, I think that um, there's going to be a lot of races like this where it's just un- uncertain. So, Um, It's a little bit harder probably to not know, but we're kind of expecting, you know, to be fit for a certain part of the season in the fall, just in case, you know, races start getting, you know, filling up the calendar more and more.
0: Right, right. And then being ready for like the spring 70.3, et
2: cetera. Exactly. Then it's taken probably the off season like we we do a bit because I don't think I have really any huge races that I need to be fit for at this time in January, February, and we'll start back up. You know that March first date is always a pretty big start date for uh, Olympic racing. Even in March, there's a lot of half Ironman racing, so we'll we'll be targeting that and kind of resetting and hoping for a full year in 2021.
0: Yeah, I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed. So you were saying you were going for a medal with the mixed relay. I feel like why don't you? I don't know that everyone knows what mixed relay is. How did you kind of get into that? Is it fun? It looks it looks like high
2: stress. Well, it's, I mean, in my opinion, it's, it's one of my favorite races to do and to watch. It's just so exciting. So the format is everybody does a super sprint, uh, so a 300-meter swim, uh, right about an 8K bike, and then a 2K run, and it goes girl, guy, girl, guy. Uh, and, yeah, it's, it's pretty unique for triathlon because it's team format, and one little mistake could cost your team pretty majorly. There's a bunch of lead changes. Everybody's full gas the entire time. <laughs> So I've had quite a bit of success in the mixed relay the past, you know, I mean, I've been doing it pretty much since 2015, 14, something like that. And um, we, the U.S. team has won a a bunch of medals. So I, I started to put myself forward as one of the main relay guys to try and qualify for 2020 as I wanted to go back not just go back to the olympics but to try and win a medal in it and the u.s team is really strong and there's a lot of strong athletes who could be on there so that's kind of been the plan but um with olympic qualification like that being on the team you still race the individual as well it's kind of a a two for one
0: yeah the way they're doing qualification right is that there's you can qualify automatically as an individual but then they're also leaving open the possibility of picking people for the relay right like that's kind of how it works
2: right so Yeah. So the bringing in this new event, like if we're talking on the Olympic level for everybody, it was we want to have another site like type of triathlon race. But they didn't want to they didn't have space for extra athletes. So you have to use still just your two or three allotted for the individual and the relay. And then for selecting the U.S. team, there's only a couple races to uh, actually qualify automatically for, which was the test event in Rio this past year. And then now that it's going to be to be determined, and then it rolls down to the discretionary selection, and one of the main criteria that they're looking at is uh, relay capability. There,
0: yeah. It's what Sarah Chu told me was that that's like a big focus, uh, winning a yeah. medal.
2: Yeah, yeah. Definitely, yeah. I mean, we've had so much success on the the world championship level with this, and we're always competitive at any of the relay events. That I think that you know a medal, not walking away with one would be, I think, disappointing for the U.S. team just with how strong our team has been the past few years. That's awesome. You
0: obviously started out on the ITU circuit, went to the Olympics, and then moved kind of over to 70.3. You're still doing both. Which one do you think is harder? Which do you like more? Does it come and go?
2: Oh, I mean, they both hurt in different (laughs) ways. Um, 70.3, I always say it's like this, this pain that slowly sneaks up on you. Cause you're, you're kind of pacing yourself a little bit, even though it's, it's moving towards, uh, almost like an Olympic style race of, with the intensity that people right. are racing it at. Um, but the super sprint stuff on the other end of the spectrum, it's like right from the gun. It's, it's all out and just hurts right away just that just quick onset so I, I enjoy them both and i enjoy the variety of it overall it's it's one of the things that keeps me motivated and i mean i, I it's pretty unique to have somebody i think that that dabbles in the the super sprint all the way through up to the half iron man so um i found it a nice challenge and a fun challenge and uh i don't know if i can necessarily pick one that's either harder or more fun or my favorite um just since they're they're pretty different overall, and <laughs> I, I like them for that difference.
0: You did some of the Super League races too, right?
2: Yeah. That's, right. uh it, It's basically like a, a more intense relay because they have multiple days of racing. The competition is super high, and uh, it's pretty fun to kind of mix up the, the different order of the events and have the, these unique formats.
0: Yeah. If people don't know, they like will change the order. They'll have you do... Like a bunch in a row, they'll have you do rounds, they'll like eliminate yeah. people. It's crazy. Um, But it also looks like the NASCAR triathlon. And I wa- keep wondering how you guys aren't terrified you're going to crash all the time because it's so fast and so many circles.
2: Yeah, it definitely is. There's a technical aspect to it that adds to the excitement. And, you know, that short track racing, it, the, the risks involved with it, I think it makes it more fun for people to watch. <laughs> I think that, you know, for us, you have to stay focused the entire time. And just like on the relay, anything that's super sprint that's all out from the gun, like any little mistake you make can can affect your entire race. So uh, I like that aspect to it a lot where, you know, if you if you miss put on a shoe or you you don't come across the line right or you aren't fully focused that entire race, that that could be the difference of finishing on the podium or well back versus, you know, some of the longer races, you have a little bit of time to make up for your mistakes, which is kind of good on its own. It's a it's right. a fun way to race, but it's just you have to be really, really focused on that short stuff.
0: Yeah, that just sounds really stressful to me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about how you got because you're one of those people who actually got started in triathlon as a kid, like way back as a junior, came up through yeah. the ranks as a junior. I mean, usually when we talk to people, they find, found it like later in life. You've mm-hmm. just been doing it since you were eight. How did, that, how did that happen? How did you kind of get into all that?
2: Yeah, so my dad found the sport first, and I remember watching him at races or in transition areas uh, doing, like, the Chicago's, the Mrs. T's triathlon at the time. Uh, and they, like, my parents, along with a few others, we had, like, this hot pocket of triathletes in the Chicagoland area out where we are living and um, a lot of the parents got together and they organized a kids triathlon at the local health and wellness center and that was my first real introduction to the sport uh, when I was about eight years old, nine years old and then the the real kind of step up that I took um, that got me on the Olympic path was a few years later the multisport madness kids triathlon team got developed um, by Keith Dixon, and that he took his swimming background and his um, his experience with watching all of these club swim teams turn out Olympians, and triathlon was a relatively new Olympic sport. I think this was just after the 2004 Olympics. We are in 05-ish when this right. team formed, like give or take, and he said, well, I want to do the same thing everybody's doing in swimming, but let's do it with this you know, pretty new sport that we have triathlon and let's try and get some Olympians. And so that was kind of the track, the vision that he had. And, you know, the parents played a huge role in being able to make that happen. And uh, we just got exposed to this draft legal triathlon at a relatively young age. And uh, I I kept going back to it. I loved it. The team aspect was great. And it got to take me uh, to some really cool places, starting with around the country and then starting to expand out to around the world. It
0: it's ended up being that like the Chicago, Chicago suburbs are kind of a hotbed for junior triathlon now, right? Like that just has happened since then kind of with that. Yeah. Club. That,
2: that team is still going on. And um, I think when you have someone or a team that's very successful, it kind of spreads out and it it goes out to the surrounding area. And yeah, the Midwest turned out, you know, multiple good teams. You have the Z three triathlon team as well, based out in, out of Iowa. And um, there's there's multiple. I know there are ones based up in um, Wisconsin and Indiana and all around the Chicagoland area. So uh, it's really cool to see. And now I know, like back in the day, I don't think we were really filling out too many start lists or we were just starting to as, as the years went on. And now I know there's so many different races to like qualify to just get into nationals. So it's definitely grown a lot, which is super great to see.
0: Yeah, I know. It's crazy. But then obviously we don't have or at the time, there was not an option to do triathlon in college, so you had to kind of make that work, right? Because you went to University of Arizona, regular college student, not an NCAA athlete, right?
2: Yeah, so I had uh, a lot of help from quite a few different people, but my mom especially in choosing the right college. And I had a few different things that I wanted when I went there. Was one to study some sort of exercise physiology okay. uh, and, and have a, a degree in that, and then. I wanted a, a big college university experience and then also to be able to train for triathlon and was going to kind of put myself all in on that because I had never really just focused on triathlon. It was always doing like a high school sport or another mm-hmm. club sport and was just going to be fully focused in. And we looked coast to coast, a bunch of different schools and settled on Tucson, Arizona because it kind of had the, the whole package there of a good place to train in the winter um, big university feel and good academics. So really kind of honed in on that and took it upon myself to, I had a coach going into college who I would communicate with and, and get my workouts from and organize my classes. And luckily I I fell into like a really good club team uh, oh, okay. at the University of Arizona, but that, that wasn't my original plan actually. Like I was going to maybe do a little bit, but there was uh, actually a pretty talented group of guys who who were at that school racing who I got to train with a little bit but i mean ever since uh, kind of my maybe junior senior year of high school into college and everything i've i've done a pretty individualized plan and done quite a bit of training you know on my own and then brought in people kind of as i i saw fit or as it worked out so
0: just to make sure I understand this though, like you were not an NCAA athlete though. So even though you were off doing like ITU races and stuff in college, you had to sort all the logistics out yourself, right? Like you had to tell your teacher like, Hey, I'm going to fly and go do this race. Like I might miss class, right?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I I've been dealing with that since grade school and even into high school and everything. So I was pretty well versed in how to deal with professors and teachers. And for the most part, I got pretty lucky with, um, the teachers who were understanding. Okay. Uh, but r- you're right. Like there was no NCAA sport. They had tried to to do a little like triathlon specific program um, along the way, but you know nothing really stuck uh, stuck until the women's triathlon became an NCAA sport. Uh, and thankfully, I had a lot of good mentors along the way to to help me out, help guide me. And when I was in college, like I, I didn't get my pro card or take my elite license until after my freshman year. Hmm. And USAT was the ones who kind of pushed me to do that and gave me the opportunity to race in Europe for a month and do four races and four weekends, like all different formats, uh, World Cups and Continental Cups and Uh, That's what really set the standard for me and set the bar for what it took to be a a professional triathlete.
0: Oh, really? Okay. It sounds like a very uh, educational college experience.
2: (laughs) Yeah. No, I learned a lot. It's it's. uh, I think a lot of times it's shocking for high school students to have a very structured life, uh, very structured school schedule and workout schedule, and then all of a sudden you go to college and. Everything is, you know, like a blank book, like a blank page. You have to to create everything yourself, which, mm-hmm. you know, is really great. It taught me, like, I had known how to work hard for a while, but it taught me really how to work smart. And um, yeah, it was it was a great experience, and was actually able to to get it done relatively early in in three years, so that I could focus on qualifying for the twenty sixteen Olympics.
0: Oh, well, that's awesome! And then you obviously worked your way up through the ITU ranks, and I mean, a lot of. Like our general audience, we're used to age group races. You like sign up, you go, it's a big, but the ITU ranks working your way up is kind of a totally different thing. You're like flying all over the world. You're like scrapping to get by, right? What's hardest about all that?
2: Yeah, so uh, from the beginning, like I said, I had some good mentors. So Mm -hmm. I had people kind of whispering in my ear saying like, hey, treat yourself like a business, like work the business side. So USAT is big on helping you start out. And even as you qualify for national teams and stuff, they're all very good about funding and all of that and then it's kind of like a game on your own like you have to make sure that you're presenting yourself in a good way building your brand and okay. that helps you know kind of front the costs a little bit then too um but yeah it's it's a lot of planning you have some guidance from some people but it's at the beginning it's pretty difficult to like break through you have to go and race continental cups and get points to race world cups and then wts races and it's a uh, it's a on the surface, a very complicated uh, system with ITU points, Olympic points, WTS points. So there's a lot of different point systems in right. there. But like once you get into it, like it all is it starts to be a little bit more intuitive. Um, aside from a few like nuancey things. But um, yeah, I mean basically if you perform well, you keep moving up the ranks. Sure, okay. And okay. I was always trying to just focus on like having my best race overall and that usually paid off for me
0: okay so but you think at this because i was gonna say i do not understand the system but you're saying that you understand the point system you feel good about it now
2: (laughs) yeah so i mean after doing it for a number of years like you get into a rhythm of it and um i mean i could probably teach a class crash (laughs) course like very basic level just to understand the points but um, after you go through and you start to notice too, like if you do well at a race, you see a certain amount of points and Mm -hmm. it's always a little bit under review and stuff. But I mean, in general, as long as you're doing well, like you're seeing yourself move up the list and that's motivating and you get to the next race and you keep focusing on that. And as you're going through it, like you might have to teach yourself a little bit, but, um, there's always people along the way who kind of help you out and, You ask questions, you're like, I I don't understand this point system. And somebody's always there, like able to help you out a little bit.
0: That's good. When you were like doing the like sleeping on couches, flying all over the world to get points, what was like the craziest situation you ended up in?
2: Uh, I mean, um, I have some good travel stories. (laughs) I never really had to crash too much on anybody's couch. But I mean, there was a time uh, there's a story that I always tell that I was in Turkey doing a World Cup and man, our flight got canceled at like midnight after waiting around for a while. And there was a group of us and this is the spark notes version a little bit, <laughs> We ended up bartering for a number of taxis to okay. take us to the other airport to try and get tickets for another flight to beat the bus of people that they were gonna get on this bus to send over to that airport. And I was like alone with all the bikes and some other people were all in other taxis and I'm trying not to fall asleep to get there. So that was uh that was really crazy. And that was to go from Turkey to then all the way to Mexico to Cozumel for the next World Cup. <laughs> so it was like this super long, crazy travel. Eventually everything worked out OK, but just like a crazy story in the middle of the night driving in taxis to the right. next airport in Turkey.
0: And you're bartering in Turkish. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just <laughs> okay. like,
2: here's here's 500 bucks, like take all six of us plus our bikes to the next airport. And they all talked and they're like, OK, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs>
0: you, I mean, a lot of the ITU athletes, though, they spend a lot of time traveling uh, because they're in like international training squads, but you mostly stay in Arizona, right? Like you pretty much are on your own. You don't really like have a squad.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had a squad, like I said, when I was on the kids team growing up and for the time, like that was awesome for me. And then after that, um, I just found that I hadn't like located a squad that was, you know, fit my specifications for what I wanted. And Having a home base for me is pretty important, and I feel like I always do my best when I'm able to put in a training block either with, with, it's with my coach who's nearby or uh, relatively close, or I have a home base to go back to. And I give kudos to the people who are able to uproot their lives and kind of live out of a suitcase for nine months out of the year because... I mean, I had trouble doing that the couple times I went to Europe and lived just out of a suitcase for two to three months. So right. um, I found having like some roots really helped me perform.
0: And even, uh, sorry,
2: <laughs> sorry, I'm dealing with a puppy who's like trying to attack. <laughs> he's, he'll probably pop on the screen. He's, <laughs> he's still in his biting teething stage. So,
0: oh man, balancing
2: him. And you guys got that for uh, a quarantine puppy or? uh... Well, we had planned on it beforehand. It was actually like an early birthday present for my wife. And um, yeah, we we got him about a week early because uh, everything was starting to shut down. So we took uh, an extra car ride real quick to go (laughs) pick him up a week early before we weren't able to. Like, oh, man, they say that uh, all the dogs and cats
0: adopted during quarantine are going to have a hard time adjusting when everyone goes back to work. But I guess you're like normal situation. He'll be fine.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, we try and leave him because I think at the beginning, he had a little bit of um, separation anxiety, but we've made sure to, to like, kind of separate ourselves from him every so often so that he doesn't um, get used to us only being here all the time. It's so <laughs> probably good. We've tried to account for that.
0: <laughs> Talking about Arizona, even, I mean, you were pretty, like, I think of you as Arizona all the way through, but, like, even when you qualified for Rio... You didn't fly out to Rio till like a few days in, and you threw yourself your own opening ceremony, right? Like in your neighborhood. I remember these videos. That was hilarious.
2: Yeah, so um, at that time, I was working with a different coach, and we did a, an altitude camp where he was in Santa Fe, so I was there for a little bit, but finished up in Flagstaff, Arizona, because I I'd moved back to, to Tucson at the time. And um, yeah, it was a good way to escape the heat and get some altitude training. And the plan for the entire team was not to go out until... Uh, about a week before the games, uh, before our race. So we did end up missing the opening ceremony and that was just something we, we quickly threw together from our like Airbnb and some of the guys, the, the younger guys I was training with and, um, yeah, ended up being ki- kind of going off a little bit, a little bit viral and it was just kind of something fun to do and to participate in while, while we were just still home training.
0: Right. Right. Which is, uh, I mean, yeah, part of the Olympics is right. Doing all the crazy stuff. And you've been working on qualifying for the Olympics, like you said, you know, since high school since you were a kid. And you finally nailed it, right? At like the last uh Yeah qualification race. It was pretty epic, I think, right? What was that what was that like to to be
2: like, no, this was it? Thanks. That actually it was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole Olympic journey, like I always say like the Olympics was awesome racing in Rio and against like the best competition in the world with the crowds is always an amazing experience. But at that race in Yokohama with how everything was panning out, like I was I felt and I think a lot of people might have felt like, oh, his chance was to qualify at the test event on the course because it's a ocean swim, hilly bike, pretty flat run, like it's kind of a strong man's course a little bit. And there's probably going to be a breakaway. And I just had a terrible race and in yokohama it was the opposite it's it's still like a it's a two-loop swim but usually wetsuit and a pretty like relatively slow bike overall it's not known for being a really hard bike and then just a, a fast kind of runner's race almost oh, and okay. there were a number of guys on the team who on paper ran faster than me and i don't think many people had me picked to qualify <laughs> for an olympic games and i think i just went in with the right mindset uh had a goal that i wanted to hit and i I crossed the line and we were talking about itu points earlier well usat had their own point system to help qualify for um that olympics to help select the team in their non-discretionary way to make sure it was fair Uh, and i about where i needed to finish but it was almost it wasn't anticlimactic so i like kind of went over i'm like that that was it right like (laughs) <laughs> those points like I, I did the math correctly right like I qualified for the team and didn't quite have like a straight answer but pretty soon after got a straight answer and was like calling my parents my coach and was just like over the moon about it
0: oh as so you had to wait for them to like double oh, check like there was it. a
2: bit of a like I deep dive. I was like kind of protecting myself because okay. I I knew that it was like that's how they had planned it but I wasn't exactly sure like oh is that like did I change the rules? Like I kind of guarded myself a little bit, but then it was like, no, that that's definitely it. That's what did it. So that was just like one of my best runs. I feel like I, I had, like I stepped up to what I needed to do and yeah, it was just awesome.
0: That's awesome. And you felt like it was all worth it then all of the hard work, everything.
2: Oh yeah, for <laughs> sure. And, then, and it's like one goal gets checked off and then, you know, you, you set up five more goals that you try and, uh, achieve and yeah it's it's a lot about the process too and that's kind of like that race was that accumulation of of the all of that process and being able to reflect back on that
0: right that makes sense and then eventually obviously after Rio you kind of started doing 70.3s what made you want to do the half distance to go longer
2: yeah I mean I think that my strength is strength and okay. the <laughs> racing has uh the longer racing has always been appealing to me and I feel like I've always. That's kind of where um, kind of my better races will lie. I just um, I, I just am I'm not as fleet footed of a runner as some of these guys out there who run 29 minutes for a 10K off the bike. Right. Like, I could spend years and years and possibly get down there. But. Um, I have a kind of a lot of goals in triathlon and you know winning a 70.3 world championship is one of them and uh, have really found that I've adapted to racing that half distance pretty well overall and and enjoy the racing a lot. You were second one year to
0: Javi so that was pretty close and it's yeah. getting really competitive like that race at nice this last year was crazy.
2: Yeah it definitely is and I mean that that race that I was second was, that kind of culmination of a lot of things coming together for me as a bit of an unknown name at that mm-hmm. distance and people let me go on the bike and thought I'd fade a lot. And yeah, I mean, um, it's hard to, to outrun or stay ahead of someone like Javi, but yeah, that was a great, uh, world championship debut. And, um, it's only gotten competitive, more competitive since then. And it's, it's great to see. It's really good for the sport.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's great. And since you like longer, I guess I'm going to have to ask, are you going to go even longer? Is that is that coming?
2: Well, I think that's on the table. But uh, <laughs> I think we still have maybe a couple years or I'll keep people guessing on when my oh, day. Will be, so <laughs> we'll we'll see about it. But it's definitely on my radar.
0: There are so many ITU guys moving up and dominating. Do you feel like it's like almost proof that, hey, guys, the ITU guys are really good, really fast. Do you feel like they're better? Do You see what I'm saying here?
2: <laughs> You're trying to bait me here, <laughs> trying to make me uh, make some enemies. Um, you know, I think that there are certain athletes from ITU who are obviously very incredible, and they make that jump really well. And I think other athletes from ITU some struggle with the distance or nutrition a little bit at the beginning. Sure. Uh, and I think that the same thing can go for for half Ironman. It's it's pretty rare that you see guys um, dropping down in distance, but it definitely it's definitely something that's been done and people have tried and and gone after that. So, um, yeah, I mean, overall, like there's just so much competitive racing now. It's, it's hard to say who's actually better. It's just triathlon is becoming more and more specialized. People are, are picking one distance and really becoming very, very, very good at that distance. And it's just taking a little bit longer in some cases, whereas others jump right across and have no issue. But um, yeah, it's becoming a very specialized sport. So it's, it's kind of different to see people all over the place.
0: Oh, that's true. That's for sure. I think the specialization's good. I think it's actually made it a lot more interesting. So definitely. And was you moved up and had to figure out all that nutrition and what were, what were some of the biggest issues you found in moving up in distance?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, maybe it's, it's two things on the nutrition. One is, um, making sure you get enough calories and enough so that you don't, um, Bonk during the race. And then the other is making sure that your stomach isn't upset that you're not, you know, throwing that up or it's not all coming back. So um, finding that balance took a lot of experimenting overall. And um, yeah, it was it was kind of I, I think that I had a relatively easy time figuring it out because yeah, I aired on the safe side. But yeah, it took a little bit of training and overfueling on some workouts and underfueling on others before I kind of narrowed it in for, for what I find works.
0: And, but you thought the nutrition part was the hardest part about moving up in distance, not the training or anything else?
2: No, I mean, because I think for Olympic-style racing, a lot of guys, we all train about 30 hours a week at mm-hmm. our peak. And you know some guys are a little more, some are a little less. It just kind of switched up how you did that training instead of some of the high intensity efforts, it's just a little bit more steady or you're on the time trial bike a little bit more. And I already kind of dabbled in that a little bit with some of the Olympic distance racing, um, the non-draft stuff that I was doing. So, um, some of it, like it's just a a little bit longer in some areas, but I didn't find it was like a, a dramatic change. Okay.
0: And if you tried, you you have tried some of the new virtual racing, right? I know you did one of the yeah. Iron Man VR races. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Is this the future? Are you going to keep at it?
2: Uh, I think it's a great thing right now, and I think it's a great thing to keep the sport going. Right. Um, and it'll probably stick around because I mean they're just fun to do. Um, I think we we've seen that there's a lot of discrepancy in in people racing virtually and outside and some people are way better outside and inside it's just a different beast like it's it's how much power can you put out and there are some guys who are just really good at putting out power so um, it's been interesting to watch uh, the results from it all but I, I found it fun and entertaining at the very least and um, I know some people won't really touch it at all and some yeah. people can't get enough of it I think I'm probably somewhere in between um, I always like a good race but uh, I'm I'm trying to bide my time a little bit. I, I just love being outside and, and racing all of the traditional races that we've got going on and um, just being out on the course and being able to go head-to-head with people. Um, so I think I probably favor that a bit more. But uh, definitely, it's been a good training tool.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're not going nuts. Like, some people with all of the race cancellations are doing, like, all the VR races, all the yeah. KOM attempts, like, everything. But you're not yeah, really. No,
2: I've never... I've never been much of a KOM guy. I've never been much of uh, like just a virtual racer or something like that. And um, I don't know, maybe it's something because it's just virtual or it's just a time. Like I I can still push myself super hard. I train on my own a lot. But there's there's just something else about like going head to head with somebody who's right next to you or Mm -hmm. standing on the start line next to everybody else like that. That's just kind of another level for me.
0: Yeah, I can get that. And I know I saw you at Kona one year doing the Kona beer mile. So is that also in your mix of of events? Uh,
2: I think I outgrew that a little bit. <laughs> uh, no longer in college, so okay. Uh, yeah, I don't think I I can put down any beer miles anymore. So sticking to the to the mainstream racing nowadays, to the to the, even after the young guys.
0: Okay, <laughs> to the non beer racing. Um, yeah. Cool. I guess. I mean, usually I ask people like, "What do they have plan this year? You know, where are you going this year?" But right now, it sounds like you're just kind of waiting to see, waiting to see what happens and all that
2: yeah I've had some races that I've signed up for like oceanside um reschedule mm-hmm. and have a date for that sort of thing but um yeah honestly right now it's just kind of taking it day by day uh week by week month by month to see you know where is the world at where's the state of racing at and um my coach and i are are pretty adaptable overall, so we're just kind of biding our time and and waiting for everything to start back up
0: yeah I get that I get that that's what everybody's doing right so yeah, um, we've been finishing out with a would you rather the last couple of weeks. So here's my would you rather for you. Ready? All would right. you rather win the Olympics or win 70.3 Worlds?
2: You know, I probably could have picked that question. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Over. I could have, uh, I could have <laughs> guessed that that one was coming. Uh, I'm. It's a difficult one, but I think I'd say the Olympics. It's something that comes around times, to- like once every four years. And in this case, five years now. So um, with how much less racing there is for that like it's i think it's um a little bit more rare to have that you can count almost on one hand the amount of male olympic champions we've had um so I, i think i'll have to to go with olympic champion
0: i guess it makes sense to me so well thank you so much for chatting with us ben and uh and you know good luck with everything as as all this figures itself out
2: yeah thank you very much it was great talking to you
0: Thanks to Ben and Holden and to our triathlete staff and to all of you for listening. Stay tuned later this week for the next episode of our training podcast, Fitter and Faster. You won't want to miss it. In the meantime, keep training and stay safe.